Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the special series on the New Books Network that's about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, host of the series. Today, we'll be talking to Roseanne Carlo about her book, Transforming Ethos, Place in the Material in Rhetoric and Writing, published by Utah State University Press this year. Transforming Ethos approaches writing studies from the rhetorical flank, which flank for many is the only flank the discipline has. However, at a time when universities are optimizing structurally and streamlining pedagogically, the book must plead the case for a university where character is formed. Now that writing studies has shouldered up to its other disciplinary and institutional neighbors, composition instructors need to begin asking themselves tough questions about administration, teaching, and assessment, And perhaps more importantly, composition instructors need to begin providing answers for themselves, for sure, but most of all, they need to stop providing answers to their students. Rhetoric holds the key. Ethos, in the book, is a treble viewing of character. Character as lived in experience. Character as expressed in text. Character as found in material things. So, character, or Greek ethos, is the core, which is a might bit wider a scope than merely reason, or Greek logos. Why then is everything in writing studies and college composition moving so logically? Why does the WPA, stands for Writing Program Administrator, the WPA outcome statement sound like a manual for professionalization? Why are threshold concepts operationalizing rhetoric for disciplinary purposes? Why is it held out to composition instructors that they teach writing in such ways that skills can be transferred to careers? The short answer is because you can measure this stuff, and good measurements land students good jobs. Roseanne Carlo provides different answers, and these spring from the new rhetoric, from the writings of Jim Corder, from ethos as a gathering place for community, and for more Greek words, from kairos, from kora, and many another well-found and well-placed rhetorical tool turned to Roseanne Carlo's purpose of teaching writing, teaching rhetoric, as a way of life. Roseanne Carlo is an assistant professor at the College of Staten Island, City University of New York, and she co-directs there the Writing Across the Curriculum program. And if you want to know more about Roseanne Carlo, she's here today. But she's also there in Transforming Ethos, where she exemplifies her cracking the genres of scholarly and personal writing by weaving the two to one in the story, which is also about her. Scholarly Communication, this special series on the New Books Network, has the aim of showing just how research gets published, a podcast about how knowledge gets known. Everyone from first-year college students to tenured professors knows what research looks like because they either have been taught or have themselves taught how to do it. The same cannot be said about publishing. Scholarly communication wants to help change that, 
Scholarly communication wants to reveal to researchers and readers alike just how essential communication is to their research, because we believe that communication improves when people understand how communication happens. We believe, too, that research improves when researchers better understand their role as authors. So, let's begin today's episode. Roseanne Carlo and her book, Transforming Ethos. Roseanne, welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me and for that wonderful introduction of the book. Um, that's the best summary I've read so far. So um, I think it was better than mine. So thank you so much for no. <laughs> um, paying attention to the um, the intricacies of the book and really doing it justice in your summary. Thank you. Well, oh, that's very nice. Um you're going to do a better job, though, I'm sure, <laughs> because uh, you know precisely uh, all the intricacies of what you're trying to tell us. And um, I'd like to start off, though, precisely with you. I'd like uh, to hear uh, what led you to write a book like this and um, also give uh, listeners a chance to find out a thing or two about you. Yeah. Um, so in terms of writing this book, it it was um, a long time coming. Uh but yet at the same time, uh, fortuitous or like a happy accident, because some of this book is my dissertation, which I mentioned in one of the chapters of the book. Um, but then when I accepted my job at College of Staten Island CUNY, um, so many other aspects of the field came to be a part of who I was as a professional because I took on some administrative roles there, um, like assisting with the writing program and the writing across the curriculum program. Um, and at the University of Arizona, where I did my graduate work, I didn't have as much uh, ex- expertise or um, background in administrative work. And my dissertation was largely a, a rhetorical um, dissertation, though, of course, like I've always been interested in comp studies in pedagogy and in trying to unite those um, two aspects of the field because I don't see them as disparate. I see them as working together and informing each other. And I think the book comes from that perspective. Um, In my dissertation, I did not (laughs) write a a, a personal uh, book. I I, um, wrote a dissertation that was very um, heavy with like a lit review and, and, um, you know, I think chapter two in the book, uh, exemplifies some of the kinds of, kind of writing that my dissertation sounded like. Um, but I always had this desire to write from a more personal perspective. And as I developed, a, into my faculty role at CSI, I thought, I have a lot to say about my role as an administrator there. And also I wanted to talk about why I was interested in this, in this topic of ethos. And I think at one point in the book, I asked, um, you know, how do you, how do you write a book about character without revealing your own? And I think that um, I, I think that the book is from a very personal perspective. And um, I think that is a vulnerable undertaking as a writer. Um, and also to to write about 
relationships with family members um, and to write about uh, my relationship with my dissertation advisor, which is part of this book too. And um, so I just became more comfortable with that notion of um, putting myself out there in writing because it was so central to the idea of the book that we have to show our, um, our people and our places and our things to really connect with a reader. And I try to model that in my own writing um, throughout the book. So I'm sure there are other, many other reasons why I wrote the book, but I think that's the core of it. And um, I hope people see what I'm trying to do in terms of um, pushing the boundary of scholarly work, which I think um, I'm not the first to do that. I think that I have, I have many models um, and those are the people that I'm citing in the book. So um, it also is sort of a, um, a love letter to, to those people, um, to those scholars like Quarter, like Benjamin, like Bell Hooks, who have influenced my thinking and my writing. And, you know, I add, I add my voice to theirs for sure. I would say that Jim Corder would be one who really stood out. Uh, Bell Hooks, of, of course, as well, but um, Jim Corder has many of the epigraphs uh, in the in the different chapter headings and uh, seems to provide many different uh, words or concepts and wonderful quotations uh, for your arguments. Could you perhaps say a bit about his writings and uh perhaps even his view of rhetoric and why it was that he seemed to be such a central figure for you? Absolutely. Um, so I didn't know Jim Quarter's work um, until I went to graduate school. And um, I remember taking teaching of writing with uh, Theresa Enos my first semester. And she kept, um, you know, she had a very thick Texan accent. So um she used to say, uh, you know, when she would speak, sometimes I couldn't always catch what she was saying because I'm like so Northeast and I, I was like, what is she saying? Um, so she said, um, Jim Corder. So in my notes, I remember writing like Jim Corder with like a Q-U-A-R-T-E-R. And Some like, French guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, like, who's this Jim Corder? And I'm like trying to search for articles that this person has written but then it was, um, it obviously led to um, a blockage because I had the name spelled wrong. And then I remember going back and being like, oh, it's like C-O-R-D-E-R. And then um, that kind of led me to reading Argument as Emergence, Rhetoric as Love, which I think most people um, who know Quarter's work, they've at least read that. That's sort of like the piece that people know by him if they know him. Um, and I also, Theresa also, uh, taught a course the following semester, um, called, uh, post beyond post-process and post-modernism in rhetoric. And she had an edited collection, um, of the same title. And we, she used that as a, uh, as a main textbook, but then we also read, uh, quarters of as like a, um, as part of the course. And I, that class was such a turning point to me because I was like, wow, this, this author is doing something different. I hadn't quite 
encountered in um, other readings on rhetoric that I had done previously. And it was, for me, his sort of um, reliance or, or thinking about how place and um, the material has sort of shaped who he um, who he was. And he was trying to sort of trace those, um, his sense of self through these things, and also to do it in a way that um, foregrounded rhetorical ethos, um, because he had written several articles on, on ethos. Um, and he was doing it through sort of a, a lens of rhetoric, but it was inten- intensely personal. He also had written um, some nonfiction works that um, have nothing to do with rhetoric in, in some ways, although they, they certainly, he can't get out of his, um, you know, lens of thinking through rhetoric. I don't think he abandoned that in the creative nonfiction either, but um, he certainly is always present in his writing. And I think that presence it always interested me because I was like, why am I so attracted to this? I never met this person. Like I, um, you know, I, I think about, um, how voice, um, how his voice like meant so much to me then and still does in a way. And I, I kept asking myself, like, why are we attracted to some voices and not to others, which I sort of open um, the second chapter of the book with that question. And I think that that kind of led me on this journey of thinking through rhetorical ethos um, as a starting point. I I think I both um, meet Corder where he is and try to talk about his work, but I also um, in some ways went beyond that. And I think um, the book, I think it's funny. I I originally thought I would write a dissertation about Corder. It was going to be like, um, a more biographical, um, but also, I guess, rhetorical dissertation about his influence in the field. But as I kind of got further into my reading, I kept thinking, actually, I want to make his work relevant to conversations that are happening in the field today. I don't want to historicize his work. I want to bring it into today. And so even though it's such an important influence in the book. Um, I also wanted it to um, go like the book to go beyond it in some ways. So, yeah, thank you so much for asking me that question. Um, yeah, well, uh, you do you do bring him in and bring him right up into today. In fact, uh, you bring us uh, right into one of the corridors of your uh, college, and uh, we see there a vine <laughs> growing through the air conditioning. And this this serves as a really uh, vivid picture of some of the issues concerning materials and concerning place, uh, as as you describe them, um, and, and obviously coming from from um, Jim Corder's work, as important to the way that you view rhetoric and also that you view education. I think it would be helpful though if we perhaps started on the more theoretical rhetoric side before we came to the actual vine in the corridor, <clears throat> excuse me, and and what that means for education and writing studies. Um, so to get to the first side, as I was just saying, the rhetoric side, you put 
ethos up front. You talk about, you call your book Transforming Ethos, which as I understood it, has basically two versions. Yeah, Ethos can transform, but you're intending also to transform our view of it. Could you perhaps uh, speak to both of those views on ethos and maybe also give some of our listeners a slightly broader view of rhetoric? Because I think many of them have in mind also perhaps, you know, just someone like Aristotle or Socrates walking around the agora. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, you, 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 mean, you mean clearly uh, very modern things. This isn't, this isn't classics here. Um, but, but to the title, if you would. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think there's also a, th- a third facet maybe of the title that rhetoric can transform you as the, as the speaker. Um, and, uh, that when we engage in rhetoric, it's a process of transformation for the self, for our listeners, um, and, you know, the people that we're trying to communicate with and also, um, that larger, um, meaning of, uh, can we think about ethos differently, um, than the sort of more facile definition of like ethos equals character, which, um, I think the book is trying to enrich, um, the definition. So as you say, um, said in the summary, um, in this book, ethos is thinking about character and text, like character as embodied, um, character as expressed in material and, and, and physical, um, things. So, um, I'm trying to uh, deflatten a concept that has been flattened, I think, in our modern interpretation. And I am going back to classical rhetoric, but I'm also trying to update that definition with um, how we think about rhetoric through the new the lens of the new rhetoric. And um, also some contemporary theories of um, ethos, which are sort of expressed um, in like Nedra Reynolds' work on ge- um, uh, on geography, or um, the feminist uh, edited collections on uh, ethos, and some of the work that has been done in the 20th and 21st century. So I'm trying to use that work to um, bring a richer definition to ethos and to emplace it as a very central term within our field. And I think that in some ways, we don't want to see rhetoric as a handbook, as a, okay, this is how you get through school. Or this is how you get through um, persuading somebody. (laughs) Um, Though I guess persuasion um, can be an end to rhetoric. It doesn't always have to be um, the primary goal. And I think Kenneth Burke's work um, certainly has influenced me to think of that because he, of course, like makes us think about how persuasion is. like superseded in some ways by um, identification, which is about um, creating presence for 
um, the reader so that they um, relate to you as a, as a speaker and, or as a writer. And the way that we do that is through our, um, our style, um, our uh, like how we create presence through our voice, but also the subjects that we choose to write through. And um, the book highlights how, when we like choose material objects and places as um, starting points for narrative, that these things um, are revealing our lived experience and our ethos and might be a part of reaching out to an audience and inviting them into our, um, our, our world as, um, as the speaker writer. But I think there's, there's like often difficulties with um, this kind of writing because we can only share um, so much of our experience. Also, we're processing our experience ourselves. So sometimes we don't even have the words to describe how we understand or feel about ourselves. And I think, too, there's, um, I think, modern ideas of subjectivity, like, are important to remember that we should, we don't hold, like, essential identities, that we have multiple facets to our identity. And, um, that that's also a driving force, like in in how we understand ethos and rhetoric and our audience, because um, we also can't think about audiences as two dimensional either. We have to consider how they um, that the many aspects of their identity in in crafting our um, our words, which are um, I think should be intentional and powerful. Um, and I think that when we write and when we teach writing, we're, we're giving students that intentionality um, to speak to an audience. And actually when we ignore that um, and we make it a part of um, efficiency or getting something done, like, I, I think that's a real danger, and I think in the book I'm I'm also um, resisting that <clears throat> and actually trying to say like writing takes time, knowing ourselves takes time, and so when we uh, value efficiency as a form of success, like what does that mean, and like why might we be um, giving into that notion, even though um, it might be behoove us to, to slow down and um, to really think through our words um, and to be intentional with them. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. That's- <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a lot of interesting things that you say there. This, this idea of efficiency uh, certainly plays a major role today in, in education and, and, and is certainly uh, reached writing instruction and writing uh, studies. Um, but I, I think I'm going to follow up something else, this idea of uh, identification that you talk about. Um, I think that's a wonderful uh, view in onto rhetoric for our listeners who probably think primarily of persuasion being uh, what's going on in rhetoric. And um, you 
here in uh, the chapter where you go into Kenneth Burke's work in particular, talk about, I think, also multimodality there, which is why you are asking questions along the lines of I have here on my notes, um, to what extent is ethos uh, a product or a material of language and language alone? What else might there be involved then with ethos? And and then part of your answer would be, uh, as far as I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you, then what it is that you're talking about, the topic you've picked up, and in particular, perhaps the place that you've set, whatever it is that you're writing about. Um, I, I, again, have to think of the vine coming through the, <laughs> coming through the air conditioning at the beginning of your book, which, which, which really performs, if I'm not mistaken, precisely what you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, it's hard because I think that <clears throat> when we get to this dimension of ethos, and I, um, I try to explore this in chapter four, sometimes there's not always words to uh, describe one's um, affinity or why uh, you know, th- someone relates to a particular place or has like folded it into themselves or has seen it um, impact their sense of self. Um, and in the book, I try to give particular examples of that for myself, and I'm trying to model that to my reader. Um, and the opening image of the vine does that because I think that it it, it, um, represents my professional, um, experience and identity but I also think that it speaks to my institution and I think it speaks to my students' experience and um, the ways that they are um, members of that institution are part of that institution and have to, um, we all have to like kind of labor through those material conditions and they become really important. But sometimes we don't talk about um, place or the material because we're focused on the more abstract, um, I guess, uh, things around rhetoric. So like, um, voice or (laughs) threshold concepts. Um, so we ignore, I think some of the, um, very interesting material things that are happening within our institutions. And now that we're dealing, especially with COVID and we are beyond the institution in some ways or displaced from the institution, I think this work becomes all the more important because I keep thinking like our, our campus was, is like, we're not able to go back um, because it is a health concern. Like it, we cannot go back um, at, at this point because the, the air systems are so compromised in the buildings that we literally wouldn't be able to um, prevent like a contagion like COVID from um, infecting people. So I think that this has a real consequence for um, our students and for our institution. And um, <clears throat> unlike like a private institution like Notre Dame that can go back and um, 
you know, it, it ensure, although they haven't done a great job, but ensure some safety um, for their student population, maybe because they have more modern buildings and filtration, air filtration. Like at my school, we could not guarantee that. And we didn't even have hot water in the building for um, years. <laughs> so um, I think that, that that really needs to be foregrounded in, um, in, in any conversation of identity and rhetoric. And we, we should always be returning to material conditions as a part of our understanding of rhetoric, because if we don't, then I think we're really doing a, a harm through our abstraction. And this then sounds to me a lot like a Kairos. This sounds a lot like a timely moment. I mean, you mentioned COVID literally uh, turning things upside down and it appears as, as, as you're describing it, not to have been very right side up to start with um, at, at you know, a particular uh, institute. So is this uh, also something that people in writing studies uh, need to be aware of, or even scholars generally, perhaps even outside the humanities, I'm thinking perhaps even in the social sciences, that they take as a starting point where they happen to be or where their envisioned readers happen to be? Oh, absolutely. I I definitely think that. I think that um, we have to hear from scholars in institutions like mine um, and community colleges. My, my institution's kind of both. It's a community college and a four-year. So we give associates degrees as a, as a final degree. A student can leave us after two years, or they can choose to get a bachelor's or even a master's because we have a master's program. So we're a comprehensive, what's called a comprehensive university. Um, and uh, being part of the city university of New York, um, we have an affiliation with that, um, with that system and with that system's history and it's a sort of um, drive for open admissions. And um, I think we have to look at scholarship and learning that's being done in these institutions rather than looking to R1 or to Ivy League as some sort of um, pedestal um, that everyone should be um, attaining. Uh, Because actually, what might be happening at these um, state and city universities um, might be more interesting or um, uh, more innovative because we don't have any money to do anything. So we are operating on a wing and a prayer here. And um, I think the the thinking that's coming out of these contexts can drive um, the field more than it um, might be doing right now. Additionally, I think that um, our students should be taken more seriously than um, they sometimes are. And I think that um, it is very unfair to um, students at my school to kind of um, compare or judge them um, uh, uh, in comparison to a student who's paying $30,000 a year to go to a private school. and so I think there are definitely, um, I'm, I'm very passionate about this, right? I think there are definitely- no, you should be, you should uh, be. Like, and the book, you know, the book is a wonderful uh, plea for uh, more attention uh, to, to schools yeah. uh, like yeah. the one that you're at, yeah. definitely. 
Yeah. Uh, so I, this and is I, a, a class and race issue. Um, and it's something that I think, I don't know, I, I think I maybe could have done even a better job in the book of, of highlighting that, though I think I, I, I tried the best I could. Um, but I definitely see this as a class and race issue in the academy and that we have to um, think about or, or foreground the experiences of working class and minority students in our discourses that um, drive the field. And um, there are so many other people advocating for this too. Um, I'm definitely not the only voice. And I think that there will be, um, I, I think there is going to be a shift to that. And I think it's already happening. Um, like look at Asawa Noy's work or um, Carmen Kynard's work or Keith Gilliard's work or, you know, so many people um, who are driving this um, narrative. And I think, uh, I think my book does relate to that uh, movement in some ways. It it definitely does. It, it I mean you I would say uh, here looking at the uh, contents you give roughly half of uh, the space of the book to uh, precisely this issue. So chapter four is definitely entirely focused on that with the appendices that are added, um, and the book starts off uh, very much in in your uh, environment uh, as a teacher. I think that's. Uh, that comes across uh, very clearly and is extremely important. I'd, I'd like to uh, maybe uh, just almost in a sense flip the perspective that you were just uh, talking about where it's important to be looking at schools that aren't in the Ivy League and to uh, have scholars being starting from that ground when they talk about what matters or what is important to rhetoric or even their findings in whatever field they happen to be in, whether it's anthropology or economics or elsewhere. And, um, and and flip it in, in this sense, I think it could also be said that it's just as important in the, say, Ivy League schools, the 30 to 40,000 semester schools, that they also start from where they are. In other words, I heard this a long time ago, and I'm not sure exactly how accurate it is, but it sounds accurate. <laughs> when you hear all of these studies saying that... Um, people prefer this or that, or studies have shown this or that about uh, one about people's psychologies, um, it was said that pretty much 90% of those studies come from North Americans, come from people in the age range of 18 to 35, and they all tend to have at least a two to a four-year degree in college. So in other words, when we hear these studies about psychology, they're really not talking about most of humanity. <laughs> they're talking about a very small group. And if we imagine that the kind of science or the kind of research that's possible at an Ivy League school as being science overall, everywhere, isn't that a bit of a lie? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I read an article, I want to say it was the Times, so I'm not 100% sure about how one of the vaccine trials um, ignore, for COVID um, uh, did not have a representative um, amount of, of African-American um, candidates for the, vet, for the trial vaccine. Um, but of course, as we know, the, the largest percentage or, of, um, or very close to the largest group of people affected are African-Americans. So um, again, like this is playing out in, in real time on a, uh, dramatically for us through um, what's happening with uh, COVID. And of course, um, in New York City, we sort of have to look at this demographic 
data. Um, it's not just about, uh, you know, the, the presence of COVID. It's about the communities that are being affected by COVID. And we know that disproportionately that, that, that those communities are um, working class and are run along lines of, of racial um, demographics. So I think that this is playing out for us in, 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 in public health right now. And, um, you know, my, my dear colleague, Matt Brim, he wrote a book called um, Poor Queer Studies, which um, I'm not plugging his book, but it's very good. Um, and he sort of looks at queer studies um, as having an epicenter in um, Ivy League and um, Research One universities like Duke. And um, I think his book is actually published through Duke. Um, and he's, but he is looking at queer studies happening as a college of Staten Island and what we are doing to forward that discipline um, through our working class um, ethos and lens. And so I think that um, there are books coming out of contexts um, like uni that are, that hopefully will um, influence the field um, and the, the field that they originate in, or um, even in our case, rhetoric and composition, to bend its ear maybe toward um, <clears throat> toward these contexts um, rather than toward um, contexts that uh, you know are are only like operating on um, very high budgets and um, resources out the ears. <laughs> <laughs> um. I, I would like to, uh, before we move perhaps to the educational side, speak a bit more about uh, some of the rhetorical concepts that you bring into your book. Um, you ask towards the end of the second chapter, what is rhetoric for? And then give an answer which uh, actually is quite directed at the topics that we've just been having now about even the healthcare system being affected mm -hmm. by a blindness for where people are starting from. And you give this answer, you say more or less um, that rhetoric is a way of bringing our realities into existence and a way of listening to the realities of other, others, a way of being, a, a way for being with others and moving forward with them. So mm -hmm. to me, this sounds a lot like the idea of the identification that is the central topic in that uh, chapter. But what I'd like to ask here is, what is it that then practitioners of rhetoric and also researchers of rhetoric, you think, um, could do beyond your book, of course, <laughs> to, uh, to enact this sort of identification, to reach the sort of communion, as you use the word at one point in the book. Yeah. I think that it's very, I also say in the open, I think the opening of chapter two, like it's, it's very hard to, um, develop a sense of um, empathy or to question, uh, you know, received lessons um, from your past or um, to identify across difference. Um, I, I don't think that this, pro this process is um, um, an easy or fast one. <laughs> I think it, um, I think transformation of the subject or you as speaker um, happens over time and is um, inv like involves a lot of um, imagine imaginative um, engagement with um, 
and and real engagement with others, right? And um, I think for myself, um, I feel that I've gone through, uh, in some ways, a process of transformation in my own understanding of um, the field and its work. And I think that I've been influenced, of course, by my institution um, to see it this way. And I think that I didn't always um, have a, um, a specialization or a, um, an understanding of, of um, class and race issues um, as, as much as I uh, do now, like working in the institution that I'm working in. And again, that, that material reality um, ha- has influenced me. And I think that when we talk about identification, um, you know, across uh, class and race, I think it's a very um, hard topic to, to broach because I think that there are essential separations that we will never um, understand. And I think, but I think that if we just like abandon the project of uh, solidarity that um, or um, empathy that that um, puts us in an, uh, a totally worse um, place. But, um, you know, I, I always keep asking myself, and I think this is the, uh, the opposite end of identification, which I kind of, um, which Burke talks about and, and I've kind of thought about sort of like, okay, um, you know, identification can also be very like painful and one doesn't like, want to identify with like say um or at least i don't (laughs) identify with like a white supremacist group or something so i think that um that identification can have positive ends in creating more solidarity across difference but it also can have these very extreme uh negative ends um if one ascends to a white supremacist viewpoint or future that um is brought on by a form of identification. So um, <laughs> I don't know how to um, extricate the good and the bad identification, but it's there. Yeah, yeah, I, for sure. Uh, I think I think your next chapter, uh, the one on material objects and the ethos appeal, does offer though some. Uh, I would almost say practical answers to some of these questions. Although, as you say, none of these things are easy to solve, and. <laughs> None of them are necessarily going to be solved very soon. Um, but you talk there, and this is where you come again very strongly into the book uh, about your Aussie, I think it is, uh, and uh, how you're uh, walking through antique shops and, and touching some of the dishes that remind you of uh, her kitchen and so on. And I found that that was one of those moments where First off, your your theoretical uh, arguments came out so clearly. It was clear what you meant by bringing an object in as a rhetorical device or having a rhetorical effect and, and contributing to ethos. But I think that uh, it's just this idea of using the senses. It's so... There's such a long tradition and it's so natural to equate sight with logos. Yeah, It's like you see and you understand or you see and you believe, but 
if anyone reflects on it for a moment, it's those senses, as you describe in the antique shop, of touch or sound or smell or taste that really touch us most deeply, that really bring us back to memories or places or people that we knew. And I guess what I'm getting at is if it was possible in scholarly writing to also include those senses, I wonder if a different sort of identification wouldn't be possible. Because there you have the opportunity to humanize in a sense of the reader also gets it because everybody, everybody, I don't care if you're a white supremacist or an oppressed uh, person, um, you, you have smelt something and remembered something. <laughs> and if it's possible for that to be involved also in rhetorical skills, then I think there's a chance. I think that's an opportunity, a move that could be made. Yeah, um, I I absolutely um, agree because I think too, and and um, this also has pedagogical application. I think it has both scholarly and pedagogical application because um, you know when we teach students how to um, write uh, narrative uh, descriptions and to um, engage senses and to invite readers into these remembrances. Um, of the past, then I think that we um, might be hitting on a sort of um, way of creating identification. And and that definitely is what I'm trying to get at in in chapter three of the book. And, um, you know, I I think too, uh, we have to, in some ways, write these narratives that very much matter to us and to in, engage them a, a reader through through that experience and um i think the people that i write about in my book um are uh very important to me and so it's like if i can uh communicate um a part of of myself and these people to my reader like can can they um, relate to me um, in some way as the writer of the book? And, um, and in, in extension, like if we teach students to do this, can other readers um, relate to them? And like to return to uh, the earlier point that we had made about um, Jim Quarter, it's like, why did I identify with Jim Quarter? I don't know, because I grew up in the Northeast. I don't think I knew anybody with an accent uh, until, you know, graduate school. Um, and I didn't know anybody from the South um, ever. <laughs> so, uh, you know, why why did I identify with this person's writings? And, like, you know, I, I guess that, there's potential for identification, um, but we don't always know where to start or, um, you know, how to trace that, um, that affinity. Um, and I think which, which that seems, I, yeah, yeah, I just wanted to jump in on that, which, which seems to be such a, a pity, such a loss, as you say, to, we don't know how to trace that affinity. I mean, just if we step back and think, the humanities and the social sciences are meant to be understanding people and people together. 
it's almost as if you you know pick up a research journal in economics it's almost as if they've forgotten that <laughs> i don't know if you or if you follow my logic there but um i don't see any reason why and it's been done for sure um i'm trying to think of the name not uh, it's escaped me now but uh, there's been very very many uh, sociologists, for instance, who have taken a more uh, ethical approach uh, to their writings and including the place. And anthropologists, I would say, would probably tend also to work on a thick description level um, and try to bring whatever it is that they're studying to life uh, for the reader and so on. But it's not done everywhere. I agree. You know, um, my... My, my dear friend, uh, Rachel Wendler, who also has published a book through Utah State University Press, we, we lived together for like five years. We went to the same graduate program. Um, we both worked in um, uh, like with service learning um, students in uh, high schools in Tucson. And um, she directed the program that facilitated um, the service learning between the college and the university. And and her, her life and her research has always influenced me. And, um, you know, what she talks about in her book is sort of this, you know, uh, really valuing community perspectives um, of uh, on it, when we do service learning and research and to think about epistemology differently. She challenges those notions of who makes knowledge and, um, she has always kind of brought community members into the process of creating knowledge. And in her book, she interviews, oh, I want to say like 50 people from um, different sites that she's looking at in her book. And, um, you know, the, the book has a, um, a heart to it that is really trying to change discourses around service learning and how we, how we quote, serve others um and so in some ways even though it's not an explicit citation i i think that um that work and and knowing rachel and living with rachel has certainly influenced me and um, my work and um so that in some ways uh is a is a part of the of, of the book even though that might not be the the main um what's actually read or are understood but mm. that's i think the best transition i could ask for to uh, the other part of the book i wanted to get to which was um the writing studies part and your actual instruction in uh writing um i think i'd like to start on a big question <laughs> and that is uh what place you see for writing in education and then what place writing seems to have in the university. And I mean, I say education and the university on, in a sort of indefinite way. You don't need to necessarily refer to your context, but what would you see perhaps on an ideal state level? What, where, where, where would you situate uh, the activity of writing? I think it's just so central. I mean, um, but of course, like I, I'm biased because I'm a writing teacher. So I, I, I really believe in like writing across the curriculum's uh, message that writing is a way to learn that, um, you know, that low stakes writing is so important, even um, if we're teaching content knowledge. Um, so uh, maybe I'm, uh, I am like a 
a representative for that work. So I just see it as so central to making knowledge in the disciplines, but I also see it as central to um, our understandings of ourselves and um, to values like um, reflection and um, metacognition, knowing our how we learn, our process of learning, um, and you know, to uh, like I think it can really en- enrich one's education to have writing at the the center of what we're doing. I think that with first year writing, um, it, it's very difficult um, because of the way that it is situated in in U.S. universities. And I think, and I, I do try to get at this a little bit in the book, uh, particularly when I cite Donna Strickland's uh, work on this, like about professional managerial class in the university and 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 how that translates into writing. And I think like. In my own context, I'm very aware of that because, like, there's maybe, you know, there's two of us with a PhD in rec comp. Um, There are several lecturers that um, are very important to, full-time lecturers are very important to our writing program. But we supervise, um, uh, you know, my WPA uh, supervises 100 adjuncts who are working at several different institutions, um, not just ours. And that puts a strain on what writing can be and do because of how it's valued within the university currently. And um, it's not, it's like, how do I put this? It's like no one's fault that it's that way, except maybe like administrators, but writing writing is always on the chopping block and it's always, it always needs to be defended. CUNY is going to go through a ton of budget cuts because we're probably, New York state is not going to be bailed out maybe at any time soon by the federal government for um, COVID. So Cuomo is going to have to cut um, essential services um, in the, in the city and state and um, do not be mistaken. He will cut funding to CUNY. And this cut to CUNY will mean really potentially negative and bad things for our students and faculty. And it might mean um, a raise in course caps. It already has happened to some of my fellow colleagues um, at other CUNYs. My institution has kept first-year writing course caps at 25. However, I know of one institution in the CUNY system that has raised their course caps to 42. So don't tell people that you value writing if you're putting 42 bodies or um, online presences into a Zoom, and um, and and it's gonna you think it's gonna have a good outcome or benefit students. Um, if anything, we need to lower caps. We need to individualize writing education more. We need to invest in this part of education because it is so central. But somehow. Um, because it, it gets um, linked to skill development, it just becomes like, oh, yeah, like, you know, writings, like first year writing is just something to breeze through and, um, you know, put the widget in the in the hole. Right. Um, and I think that that's um, sad. And I, um, I hope that um, these uh, budget cuts do not affect um, 
uh, people that work very hard for us, our adjuncts, and um, and also in extension, our students um, who will obviously feel the effects of um, online learning and of um, in presence, but learning through these through these potential very very harmful budget cuts. Hmm. So I mean. <laughs> Definitely, uh, I mean these are very real issues, no doubt, as 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 you make entirely clear there. And when you're talking about 42 people in a class or 150 adjuncts under one uh, writing uh, program administrator, I mean these are circumstances that uh, no one could really run well, I don't think. <laughs> um, and what I, I mean, one question that I, I would like to follow up with there is this idea that writing seems to be first on the chopping block, as you say, that despite the fact that we can see it as being central to metacognition, as you say, to learning processes and so on, it isn't valued. And you're far from the first person I've heard tell me this. And I just, and I experienced myself here at my own university in Germany, even, which is an entirely different context. And yet writing is seen as somehow secondary, supplementary, um, just just in the sciences to hear people talking about writing up, writing up, they're always writing up their results as if um, they could almost program a machine to do it, <laughs> which they, I mean, which they can't, and they just won't seem to accept that. I, I, I wonder what it is that, I mean, this is a, you could answer the question one or two ways, or you could just talk about it. I, I wonder what it is that rhetoric could perhaps offer to change that? Or I wonder what it is that is in people's heads for some reason that they view writing in that way. Mm. I, I think sometimes um, we see knowledge as like transactional. So it's sort of like, um, as, as you were describing, oh, I have to write this up or that the writing doesn't lead to a process of change or inquiry. And I think that um, when we think about writing just as like reflecting data or um, as uh, like the work is already done and now we're going to write it, um, I think in the humanities, we hold a different principle of like uh, of inquiry and like, um, and I think my book tries to embody this too, is sort of, you know, um, we don't have all the answers, actually. Um, and we're embarking on a process of research as a form of, of wondering, of wonderment. And um, we, we have to uh, hold that spirit of inquiry and invention in, at, at the center of our, our intellectual lives. Um, and I think writing... Um, if it's if it's taught with that spirit, can do that, and um, you know, I I think delaying conclusions um, or writing with an exploratory um, lens can be really beneficial. I think sometimes we want to like, and sometimes with writing, it you know, we're like if we're teaching it, it's like okay, like today is thesis day what thesis day? Like, I don't understand. Um, it's not a day. It's, I mean, and, and so sometimes I think, um, the writing process is, um, and, and this is like to, to no fault of, of anyone. I, I think the semester schedule 
does um, and, and and learning objectives and other things do impose um, time constraints on us. But I would say like, there's no such thing as thesis day. Um, it's sort of, uh, you know, you're, you're doing this writing and research to come at a thesis. Um, even in, in writing my own book, I, I, um, I, you know, it took me like seven, eight years to write. Like, uh, it's not like you, come upon this work, um, quickly. So I, I think that when you have, um, a, a spirit of inquiry and maybe the uh, rhetorical principle of invention that, that, um, that has to drive, um, people's concerns and can be useful to people in other disciplines too. Um, although I think it's, um, most useful to us in, in writing studies and in the humanities as well. But I do agree that, I mean, invention crosses the disciplines. Um, I think that any scientist, even on his or her lab bench, uh, if they're really reflecting on their results and working it through, which typically means making observations in a lab notebook, Mm -hmm. their invention is entirely active as well, unless I'm I'm off topic. I'm not sure. (laughs) No, I definitely think so. Actually, um, I maybe misspoke there. You know, uh, for example, I think... um, Charles Darwin like had a lot of notebooks that he um, would like write his um, you know observations in, and I'm sure that uh, they were very influential in um, you know his work creating the origin of species. Like it's not like Darwin woke up and and, and is like oh better write that book that reflects everything I've known for. <laughs> 20 years or whatever um he i was probably a really like painstaking process and like when whenever we're writing um it's not easy it's not uh you know an insta thesis like uh set it and forget it it's sort of like uh, uh a very difficult process and i think sometimes in our um modern sensibility um maybe like we don't have the patience for that kind of inquiry for that kind of like delayed um gratification or slowness um that i think is really like part and parcel to um to academic work yeah i because i mean in academic work you really uh, no matter what your discipline you're asking tough questions and mm-hmm. the, the way i see it the, one of the few ways that you gain any control of coming to an answer is through writing. Because, I mean, how much can you hold active in your conscious state of mind at any one moment, right? I mean, that's that's the beauty of writing. It holds everything yeah. there for you. Um, I, I'd like, though, uh, at the end here to just turn a little bit more to uh, your work and the writing across the curriculum. Uh, for listeners who aren't so familiar with uh, how this sort of a program works, uh, you have the best of experience. Could you perhaps uh, just walk us through uh, some of the normal semester activities that you go on? Yeah. Um, so usually with um, at CUNY, we have a really unique writing across the curriculum program because we have um, graduate students from different disciplines at, um, that are at the CUNY Graduate Center who get assigned to our um, respective campuses 
as WAC fellows. Um, I think it's in their sixth year of their PhD. So they're kind of ending, um, or fifth year, they're ending their studies or close to ending their studies. And um, I sort of, what's the word, um, mentor or um, I'm I'm responsible for um, overseeing these fellows that are assigned to College of Staten Island. And um, what we often do with them is we run reading groups around um, writing pedagogy. We'll um, pick some, we actually just ran a workshop uh, two weeks ago on teaching grammar in the classroom. Um, But we talked about how to teach grammar in the context of uh, student writing and how to teach grammar rhetorically. Um, So we had a piece by Laura Mashike, which um, from like 2004 that we read and we had, you know, people talk about this piece. And then we gave examples on um, how to teach grammar in the spirit as um, she argues in the piece. Um, So we do a lot of uh, work like that um, and invite people um, across disciplines at the university to come to these professional development sessions and um, to improve their pedagogy. So at CSI, we have a faculty center that um, hosts these workshops. Um, when we were on campus, it was it's actually one of our better spaces on campus um, where we can do some interesting work. And, um, you know, I, I think that um, I wish there were uh, more people in attendance um, sometimes with these workshops. Um, but I think some there's a, usually a core um, amount of people that are interested and um and come pretty dutifully. So uh, I love it. I mean, I love working with the students in other disciplines. Um, you know, this semester I'm working with a student in psychology um, who's helping me do a, a WAC survey um, across campus for instructors to think about how they are assigning and teaching writing. And we're trying to do this data collection um, to kind of be able to see like what kind of writing is valued um, in our, in our current, um, you know, uh, space at CSI and what people are assigning and doing in different disciplines, which I'm interested because I sometimes only know that through assumption, like, oh, I'm sure they're writing lab reports, but I actually don't know that. And so I'm trying to do this study with this WAC fellow who's helping me with um, the more technical end, like using Qualtrics, which I've never used before, and also analyzing data for me um, because she has an expertise in psychology and in that kind of method gather, gathering and, and survey gathering. So it's um, it opens up the door to me to learn something uh, new um, that it could be beneficial to me. So it's, um, I think that's what's exciting about WAC and, and interdisciplinary work is that, um, that opening to um, new methods um, and ways of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this is, this is one of the um, sort of central points or central interests of uh, this podcast scholarly communication is uh, how is it that people actually communicate what it is that they know from their research? And of course that, typically is through writing and this uh, whack or writing across the curriculum is from the university's end, the beginning of that in a sense. Uh, it's it's the writing professionals finding the other disciplines, finding out, uh, just as you're explaining, finding out what they're doing um, with writing and 
hopefully being able to help them. I, I would like to ask this. You say that some of your workshops are visited by sort of a core, <laughs> mm-hmm. dutifully coming, uh, other people not showing up. Uh, what, what can you say from your own experience is uh, sort of the view of uh, WAC uh, across the different disciplines? Well, I think sometimes um, people are not always aware of the program, even though we advertise um, the workshops and the um, assistance of our fellows. Um, we have, uh, you know, we, we have a faculty broadcast listserv where we send out, um, oh, we're hosting a workshop today on X, on ESL students or on teaching grammar. And, um, you know, I think I... I work on a commuter campus and, and also many of my colleagues um, are commuters and we all live far and wide, um, which I think is interesting. So we come to the campus for our work, but like I have, co- I have a colleague that lives in Maine. Um, I live in Queens um, and I work in Staten Island. So it takes me two hours to get to work um, about, you know, on an average and um, I think that that sometimes um, that lack of um, centrality and like and availability of time in the campus space can be um, a, a, an issue. And so I think that sometimes happens too. But you know, one example of someone who's like pretty core into this is like a, a computer science professor who. Um, she teaches a, an, an advanced class, um, like an exit, senior exit class. And she has done great assignments and things that, um, you know, she has drawn from her experience with WAC and teaching um, writing in the classroom. And um, she's very interested and engaged with this work, you know. So um, to me, that's like a success because it's a relationship with someone in another discipline that is is really taking what they're learning in these workshops and translating it into their own pedagogy or thinking about their pedagogy differently. So, um, but yes, I think there are challenges to this work. And I think um, part of that is, is more like my institutional context. But also I think, um, you know, part of that is like limited resources. Like we can't pay people to come to professional development because um, we don't have funds. Whereas at other schools, there might be a um, a grant like oh like you can you can come and do this work and get paid for interacting with professional development. Um, unfortunately, with WAC, we we don't have the funds to kind of be able to offer people um, compensation for their labor and for um, their um, effort, and that's sometimes even true on the end of adjunct professors in the writing program you know, we offer several workshops a semester for professors, but often we cannot compensate them for the labor of attending those workshops. Um, sometimes we do find money from our um, associate provost who's, who's been very like supportive of the work. And um, we have been able to fund some um, of our efforts, but some of our efforts go largely unfunded and are voluntary. So beyond funds and uh, these real-world issues, which clearly, as as you described, play a, a huge role, would you say that there's anything to get back to our point of writing is central to education, but 
for some reason, it's in everyone's heads at the university and most of academia as being a supplement. Would you say that there are also people in other disciplines, also faculty who, or people publishing in in their own field who think, I don't need to know how to write. I know how to write. Or why bother? (laughs) Somehow see Uh, this as irrelevant? I don't know. Actually, though, I I think there are, I'm sure there are people that are like that, um, for for sure. I mean, um, I think it is interesting because I remember um, I was very close to someone in graduate school who um, was a uh, a applied mathematician. And um, what he said was that when you are writing grants um, or applying for grant research, um, it's, it's very important to be able to frame your research and to like know how to present it in such a way that it would be um, desirable to fund. And I think that um, when we get to issues of like funding the research that people do take the writing very seriously um, when they are applying to grants and think through the rhetorical situation and, and how they frame their research and, and how they, and who's reading their grant reports. And um, so I do think they think about writing, but maybe not on the level of pedagogy sometimes. Um, They might see it as relevant to their survival um, in the academy and and in prolonging their ability to continue to hire like lab assistants or do research. But um, perhaps they haven't quite translated um, that importance to the classroom. Um, but I, I do think, um, I'm definitely, uh, this isn't like my main whack is definitely not my main area of, of research. Um, it's actually just something I, I, I fell into a little at my university, um, because I'm one of the two, um, writing specialists. Um, I was, I was asked to take over the WAC program and, um, have sort of in some ways uh, learned this aspect of the field um, through practice. <laughs> I see. And what would you then see as your central uh, area of uh, a work then at uh, Staten Island? Oh, I would definitely say that um, my, my heart and interest lies with preparing future teachers. And um, I teach master's classes on the teaching of writing on WAC and um, on like sub sub um, interests in rhetoric and composition, we have an MA program um, at the college and um, also an education department. So our students are usually um, students that take my classes are usually from both pools. So some of them are already in high school teaching high school currently, or they want to be high school teachers, or they're they're. MA in English majors that are um, perhaps interested in going further into their graduate studies, or they um, they also have a desire to um, maybe teach at the community college level um, and to terminate their educational journey with a master's degree. So it's a it's a mix of students from with different um, you know disciplinary backgrounds and interests. But we're all coming to learn about the teaching of writing, and I think that that is our, is the kind of class that I enjoy teaching, and I think excel in. And um, 
I, I just really love working with these uh, MA students. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm actually going to uh, be the director of the program uh, next year. So um, I'm, I'm very excited to kind of transition into that role because I think that I can do a lot to um, make the writing uh, part of the program like more visible because um, right now uh, the program is more dominated by um, literature. And I think like, um, you know, balancing that scale or um, offering more opportunities um, for writing for students um, will, will be an exciting uh, change. All right. Well, that sounds uh, fascinating. And uh, I want to thank you. You've been very generous with your time, Roseanne. Um, you have also just given us a bit of what's happening in your near future, but can you let us in on any other project or interest that uh, is moving you at the moment? So um, in terms of my research, I'm, I'm co-writing an article right now with a student from the MA program that I directed her uh, master's thesis and um, her work is on um, code meshing in uh, in pedagogy and in student writing and we're kind of talking about how um, code meshing is a sort of anti-racist practice and um, and how do we train future teachers to be aware of um, you know language and dialectical difference and to bring that into classroom, um, pedagogy. And, um, you know, I always have readings on this topic when I teach that class. And uh, the student became very interested in that and wrote her MA thesis on that topic. And we are working together to produce this article. It's largely her research, and I'm just helping her um, with the writing of it. But it's a very exciting um opportunity because now I feel I've always wanted to um, work with a student on an article um, and I've never really like co-wrote um, an article with a student before but I had that um, the benefit of that when I was in graduate school Theresa um, wrote an article with me and um, I, I've, I've always wanted to to try to pass that um, that mentorship and um, on to somebody so I think I'm really excited about um, that, and we're working to revise the article because we got to revise and resubmit. So, um, I think that's that's my next thing, and I'm I'm interested also in thinking a bit more about um, the idea of um, of, of uh, being displaced from campus and the sort of effects of loss and displacement on. Um, on how we will return to campus and like I guess one of the questions I'm interested in, in exploring is like how will writing pedagogy change um, or will it change as a result of this um, time online and what kind of um, what can we let go of um, or what have we let go of as a result of the pandemic um, in our pedagogies and in our writing classrooms. And, um, one of my very close colleagues, Harry, um, is asking those same questions too. And we kind of see some resonance in our thinking and, um, might work together on something, uh, 
that addresses that uh, question. Yeah, well, your book, uh, Transforming Ethos, certainly has uh, sort of laid the tracks for that sort of thinking when it comes to place and material and uh, COVID. Uh, it's all there in a sense. Um, I, I want to thank you, uh, uh, Roseanne, uh, very much. Uh, that is uh, Roseanne Carlo and her book, Transforming Ethos, Place and the Material in Rhetoric and Writing, was published by Utah State University Press this year. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Roseanne. Goodbye. Oh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the interview. Great. And this is goodbye to all of you. Goodbye to all of my listeners. Bye-bye.